how hopeful and comforting it is to know that God's grace is relentless. It's amazing how dogged we can be in our sin, how we can turn from God and His law to pursue what we want. And yet God is relentlessly kind toward us and never abandons us. And we have to believe this if we're to have any hope and comfort in our ongoing struggle against our flesh, the devil, and the world. As Paul said, God's law is good. And yet if we're honest, sometimes we find uh, God's law disagreeable as if it prevents our satisfaction and joy rather than promotes our satisfaction and joy. Even so, God continues his kindness toward us. Brothers and sisters, are you taking notice of the many ways your faithful God gives you relentless grace? How he extends kindness to you every day. If you're like me, you may want to pay closer attention. The astute religious leaders of Jesus' day knew the Old Testament scriptures well. We could call them experts, but they were unable to follow the big arrow of scripture to the glorious Christ of scripture. They were unable to grasp that Christ is the kindness and blessing of God. They ignored the prophets. They heard, but didn't really hear And so though they knew the scriptures well, they didn't really know the scriptures at all because they rejected the Christ of the scriptures. And when Christ arrived, they still didn't listen. Though extremely knowledgeable and religious, their unwillingness to receive God's relentless grace in Christ kept them out of the kingdom of God. And the scary thing was they thought that the kingdom was theirs. The same danger exists for us in the church today. Think of it this way. Imagine knowing all about sand, salt water, the gravitational pull of the moon and the sun, high tide, low tide, wind, waves, and then never really connecting it all to a wonderful afternoon with your family relaxing on the beach in the sun, and listening to the waves crash and swimming with the dolphins and building sandcastles. See, you can know the science of the seashore by studying a book, but you can only experience the beauty, majesty, and joy of the science by going to the seashore and enjoying it. The parable today is a parable of God's severe judgment and Relentless grace. And I want you to hear Christ's warning of judgment. But even more, I want you to truly hear God's relentless grace in Christ. And that's where we're headed. First, the context of the parable. Chapter 21 has been kind of tense, right? In chapter 21, Jesus rode into Jerusalem amidst great fanfare and and in fulfillment of messianic prophecy, and it says that the whole city was stirred up. Jesus drove out the businessmen in the temple and then healed the blind and the lame. The, The children praised Jesus in the temple, and the religious leaders, it says, were indignant. 
Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus taught in the temple and the religious leaders came and they questioned his authority. Then Jesus told the parable of the two sons which condemned the religious leaders. The conflict was escalating. These parables come in the context of conflict, confrontation, and condemnation. When tax collectors and prostitutes grieved their sin and misery, confessed their sin, believed the truth, received John's baptism, even received Christ and his kingdom, the Jewish religious leaders, on the other hand, justified themselves, refused to confess their sins, denied the truth, rejected John's baptism, opposed Christ at every term, and were outside the kingdom. What a contrast. The contrast exists in the church today. What's incredulity? It's a fancy word. What is it? It's refusing to believe regardless of convincing evidence. It's just refusing to believe. It's having the temperament of skepticism like Holocaust deniers or flat earth proponents or or conspiracy theorists. They, they are so fixed in their minds and in their views that no amount of evidence and no reason is able to change their minds. The incredulity of the Jewish leaders was camouflaged by the appearance of godliness. And Jesus laid bare the wickedness behind their religious costumes. And that's what he does with parables. He exposes, rebukes, and condemns the self-righteous who refuse to, to believe and repent. Jesus said uncomfortable things, but thought-provoking things, and even his hardest teachings are kind because they get us thinking about the devastating consequences of sin and unbelief. We, we need to truly hear what Jesus wants us to know. The context of the parable is helpful. Let's look more closely at the parable itself. Second, the details of the parable. Now, I'll say that there are differences uh, in how Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded this parable. I won't address them. Uh, but you can read good scholars address them if you like, and the elders can, can point you in the right direction there. I want to focus on what God wants to teach us through this parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. This was a, a sizable investment, so he constructed a fence and he dug out a wine press and built a tower to ensure the protection and the success of his vineyard. Before leaving, the master leased the vineyard to skillful agricultural workers who would carefully tend for his vines. The tenants worked the land and they were entitled, certainly entitled to some of the fruit, but the master owned the vineyard. The fruit was the master's. Now, interestingly, there is historical evidence that tenants worked land for a number of years and then ended up claiming ownership to the land. Uh, but in this parable, the master continues throughout the parable to lay claim by sending servants to receive the harvest. It was harvest time, so naturally the master sent his servants to gather his fruit from his vineyard. He's the proprietor. The tenants took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned one, which in effect communicated to the masters, we're not giving you your fruit. 
were in control. Right? They hijacked the vineyard. At this point, we'd expect the master to respond with swift justice. But what happened next is strange. No good proprietor would do this. But keep in mind, it's a parable of shock value. After having his first few servants abused and killed, the master sent more servants. More servants. The vineyard was unquestionably his, and he had plans for his vineyard. The tenants treated the master's second round of servants just as wickedly. Things get stranger. Seeing that sending servants was not working, all right, the master sent his beloved son. He said, they will respect my son. Mark gives the impression that this is the master's only son. The master sent his flesh and blood. The master sent his beloved son. The master sent his heir, indeed the heir to the vineyard. Well, the wicked tenants saw the master's uh, beloved son coming and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They wanted the vineyard. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. Essentially, if they got rid of the son, then, hey, the vineyard would belong to them. And so the tenants grabbed the master's son, threw him out of the vineyard, and murdered him in cold blood. That's, that's the parable. That's the parable. A brutal story. Jesus used this little violent parable to communicate something poignant to the Jewish religious leaders. You might remember, but, but uh, AT&T ran a series of, uh, it was an ad campaign, and it was titled, It Can Wait. And each video tells a story which, which really draws you in and engages you, and it creates this tension as you're watching these videos, and then it ends with this horrific car accident or car crash uh, by a distracted driver. And these ads, they use shock value to persuade. See, shock value is meant to stir inside of us a strong emotional reaction to something in order to lead us to conclude something or to do something. Jesus used shock value to get the religious elites thinking about their self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and the kingdom of God. He told a shocking story about cruelty, abuse, and ultimately a brutal murder to excite anger in them, to excite justice in them, only to turn the tables on them by revealing that the parable was about them and himself. So what was Jesus' point? What did he want his hearers, excuse me, to understand and do? What, did he, what does he want us to understand and do? And for the answer, we need to understand how the parable represents real life. What's the real life situation that the parable illustrates? Third, the reality of the parable. Jesus is supremely knowledgeable and wise. That's why we love him. He always knows exactly what his hearers need to hear. Jesus borrowed imagery from Scripture that the religious leaders knew well, and that's, that's a good strategy. He's, he's borrowing imagery that they would have known well from Scripture. So with the parable in mind, I, I want uh, you to listen and to hear Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. So listen to this. 
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness but behold an outcry. Isaiah prophesied judgment against national Israel. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 is the house of Israel, the nation with whom God established a national covenant. The Lord planted Israel, chose Israel, was immensely gracious to Israel, but instead of producing good grapes, the nation of Israel produced wild or sour Grapes in rebellion against God's national covenant. Instead of producing justice, righteousness, and obedience to God's law, Israel produced bloodshed and injustice. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations, and Israel failed. So God said that He'd bring Israel to ruin. God promised judgment upon Israel for its covenantal failure. And then there's Psalm 80, verses 8 through 18. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Israel was the vine that God had brought out of Egypt and that God had planted. It became an expansive kingdom which God then judged and broke down. Why? Because Israel was unfaithful to the national covenant. God subjected Israel to judgment because of their unbelief and unfruitfulness. In Isaiah 5, in Psalm 80, God is the owner 
and planter of Israel, the vineyard. In the time of types and shadows, Israel was the visible manifestation of God's kingdom, God's dominion, reign, rule, power, protection, and blessings. God graciously planted Israel and expected the fruit of justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness defined by God's marvelous moral law. But Israel didn't bear fruit. So in time, God removed the kingdom from Israel and gave it to the nations of the world who would bear kingdom fruit. That's what this parable's about. So in the parable, the master of the house and owner of the vineyards represents God to whom the kingdom belongs. The vineyard represents the kingdom of God, which verse 43 represents. The the tenants represent Israel, but most precisely, Jewish religious leaders. Israel historically being the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. The religious leaders were not faithful servants in the kingdom because they simply didn't submit to the king. The parable is about God stripping the kingdom from Israel and giving it to a people from the nations who would bear the fruit of the kingdom. The servants or slaves represent the prophets whom God sent to national Israel, including John the Baptist, prophets sent to call Israel to repentance, faith, forgiveness of sins, joyful obedience to God's law, and to great blessings in the Christ. And yet Israel and its leaders ignored, embarrassed, and killed the prophets and refused to repent refused to trust God, refused to receive Christ, and refused to live in righteousness. Second Chronicles 36.16 says of Israel, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And as Jesus told the apostles back in Matthew 5, 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what this parable is about. And the beloved son, the the beloved heir, that's Jesus Christ, the true son of God and the true heir of the kingdom. Therefore, in the parable, the murder of the son and the heir of the vineyard is the rejection, suffering, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So then, Jesus used this little violent parable to communicate once again his death and God's judgment upon Israel and its leaders. Look at verses 42 through 45. The kingdom was being taken from them and given to people bearing kingdom fruit. People like tax collectors. People like prostitutes, people from the nations of the world. The parable is a strong indictment of Israel, and yet it, is all, it also reveals God's relentless kindness toward the worst of sinners. Do you remember that little story that Nathan the prophet told uh, King David after he had committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba? The, the poor man had one little precious ewe lamb. And and this rich fool with plenty of sheep seized that little lamb and slaughtered it for his guest. They're eating little lammy. 
And hearing the story, David rightfully was completely enraged and says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan in this, the climax of the story, reveals, you, David, you're the man of the story. You are the man. Jesus was doing the same thing. The religious leaders were the wicked tenants. Really, any self-righteous and hypocritical person within the church today, maybe especially ministers and elders who control their churches according to their own carnal desires and interests instead of shepherding them gently according to the law of Christ, they're the tenants. There's a warning for us here today. So next, I'll address the indictment of the parable and the promise of the parable in further explanation of the parable. Fourth, the indictment of the parable. Jesus shocked them. And then he asked a question, verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? You see what he's doing? He's drawing them in drawing them into the story, leading them to some conclusion through shocking, and an honest answer would lead to their own self-condemnation. But they didn't suspect where he was leading them. And this is what they said. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Boom! Well, that's an honest answer. And that's what God was doing in real life. They deserved God's wrath and judgment and death. And God was tearing the kingdom from their hands to give it to the worst of sinners who were bearing kingdom fruit. Saints, it's it's interesting that the word for people here in verse 33 is ethnos. Ethnos, the same word for nations or Gentiles. National theocratic Israel was finished. Finished. The Mosaic law was finished. To whom does the kingdom belong? Jesus' Jesus's parables make it clear to those from the nations who humble themselves, admit and confess their sins, and come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life. And, and what Jesus said after they responded, which I'll get to in a moment, confirmed their correct answer. He agreed with them. Now, when Israel turned from the Lord, the Lord sent prophets uh, to call them to repentance, to call them back to the Lord. Israel rejected, mistreated, and killed the prophets, including John the Baptist. The Lord then sent his only begotten son, and Israel rejected him, rejected the Christ, rejected the Son of God. In fact, they crucified him in cold blood. In Matthew 27, 18, and Mark 15, 10, it is clear that the religious leaders delivered Jesus up to be killed up to death because they were envious of him. He was a threat to their power, influence, and control, and they wanted him gone in order to preserve what they had. For example, to make this point, in John 10, many Jews witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, an amazing thing to see And and these Jews were believing in Jesus. And the Pharisees and chief priests found out about this. And they gathered the council. And they discussed, what are we to do? 
what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, the council knew that Jesus performed marvelous works. They were not, the works were not in question. They got that. He's doing some things. We can't explain something powerful is at work here, but something prevented them from receiving Christ. As they deliberated, listen carefully for their concern in the matter. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Aha! That's what's going on. Do you you understand their concern here? They were concerned about their prominence and authority, their own control, power, and influence, and even their own national identity, which they wanted to hold on to. No wonder the kingdom was being taken from them. They had no interest in the king. In verse 42 then, Jesus asked them what I think to be a divinely sarcastic question. Have you never read in the scriptures? Of course they read the scriptures. They were experts in the scriptures, but they didn't understand the scriptures and didn't know the God of scriptures. And Jesus quoted from the same, this is interesting, the same messianic psalm that the crowds were quoting as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Same psalm, Psalm 118, and this is what he says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Christ is the cornerstone. The word cornerstone is literally head of the corner, head of the corner. He's the most important stone, the preeminent stone, the foundational, irreplaceable, supreme, and integral stone who holds the entire structure of God's house together. If he's not the corner of the house, folks, the house is going to fall. And in and through rejection, suffering, and death, the Lord himself was exalting the Christ was exalting the cornerstone. Catch the potency of Jesus' severe judgment of Israel and its leaders in verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, ethnos, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The great cornerstone will break and crush the wicked in great judgment. This is an echo of Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. Just listen. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That was happening as Jesus told the parable. Jesus affirmed their response to the parable, and Jesus proclaimed God's judgment on national Israel. The end of its theocracy, the end of the temple, the end of the Mosaic covenant and the fulfillment of Israel in Christ and a people who walk by repentance and faith and allegiance to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. 
Now, now the kingdom is beyond the boundaries of national Israel. As Paul argued in his letters, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been brought down. It no longer exists, people of God. The kingdom of God is now visibly manifest among people from the nations who bear the fruit of the kingdom who walk in repentance, faith, and obedience to Christ their king. The kingdom of God belongs not to ethnic Israel, but to true Israel or those who live beneath the reign and rule and blessing and provision and care of the king of kings, Jesus Christ in the church. So when we see the kingdom of God manifest in the new covenant church, um, that's where we see in the new covenant church the kingdom of God visibly manifest until its glorious consummation at the return of the king. Now notice that in verse 45, it began to dawn on the chief priests and Pharisees that Jesus' parable was about them. Now I, I should mention Acts 4 here. Here the Jewish leaders in Acts 4 gathered together in Jerusalem to discuss with Peter and John, who were detained at that point, the power by which they healed this lame beggar. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter told the Jewish leaders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. What a moment. What gospel clarity. Peter made the same point as Jesus. And Peter also gave them gospel. Salvation is received by receiving Christ as salvation. Now, pastoral moment here. Perhaps this parable challenges your views on national Israel today and your views on eschatology, the end times, what I'm saying here. And if that's the case, I want to be sensitive to that and I want to humbly ask you to to closely and carefully consider the meaning of this parable. What was Jesus getting at? And then consider the application of this parable and then alongside of it, consider, and you can write this down if you want, but consider Galatians 3, and six, Romans two, four, and nine, and Philippians three. So along with this parable, consider Galatians three and six, Romans two, four, and nine, and Philippians three, where Paul clarifies who the true sons of Abraham are, who true Israel is. So I think we need to heed Jesus's warning here. It's possible Please hear this. It's possible to be very religious, to do religious things, to know a lot about the Bible, but to never really know the Christ of the Bible. It's possible to be in the visible church and to to reject Christ, the cornerstone of the church, of God's house. It's possible to be among the covenant people of God and to not bear the fruit of the kingdom with the covenant people of God. That that happens. So please realize this, those who do not bear the fruit of the kingdom, meekness, 
Sorrow over sin, confession of sin, repentance from sin, faith in Christ, spirit-wrought obedience to Christ. Those who do not bear fruit do not belong to the kingdom and will suffer the crushing blow of Christ's wrath and judgment. The kingdom belongs to the Son and the kingdom belongs to his co-heirs who are united to him and who are bearing the fruit of the kingdom. Now, no doubt this little violent parable proclaims judgment against Israel and its self-interested religious leaders and really to any self-righteous religious hypocrite in the church today. But if we look closely at this gory little tale, we'll see the relentless grace of God. The relentless grace of God. Fifth, the promise of the parable. Now, I mentioned earlier that no good proprietor would send another round of servants, let alone his only beloved son. Not going to happen. You're not a good business person if that's what you do. Thinking about the parable, we might conclude, what on earth was he doing? Why would you send more servants? Why would you send your own son? You didn't see what was coming there, right? And once again... Our response, by our response, we're confronted with how little we understand the relentless grace of God. We don't understand it. This parable's not about business. It's not making the point about what you should do exactly in this circumstance. It's about God's relentless kindness towards sinners. Now, I think we're supposed to hear this parable and to feel a bit uneasy about what the master does and then to realize that God is not like us. God is not like us. God is relentlessly kind, compassionate, gracious, and loving. It's true, in earthly terms, from an earthly perspective, every good proprietor would administer swift justice to the wicked tenants. Not sending more, sending a sword or something. All right, he wouldn't send more servants, let alone his only beloved son. But the shock value of the parable is what the master did. That grabs your attention. That's a feature of the parable meant to get us thinking about the character and nature of God. Israel ignored God. Israel lived in unrepentant sin and misery, and yet God continued to pursue them by sending his servants, sending his prophets to proclaim to them judgment, certainly, and grace, sending prophets and preachers to call Israel to repentance and faith in Christ. God did not relent. They killed his prophets. And so he sent more, and he sent more to, di- to give them gospel, to call them back to God. And then, eventually, God sent his only begotten son into the world to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and they took him, and they crucified him. And that's a picture of God's relentless grace toward the worst of sinners. God even gives his enemies ample opportunities to repent and believe. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt, God will administer justice. He will bring his just wrath and judgment and vengeance in due time, but only after he has persistently communicated his gospel of grace in Christ to sinners just over and over and over again. The gospel is God sending his son to you and me to sinners, 
to rescue, to redeem us because he's now gathering his people from the nations and he's giving them his kingdom. Christ is taking ownership of his covenant people. Christ Jesus is the rightful heir of the kingdom of God. And if we are to inherit as sinners the kingdom of God, we must humbly receive the son and the king of kings. And by receiving God's beloved son then, by God's grace and kindness toward us, he makes us co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom. We're, we're, we're heirs of the kingdom with Christ, his son. The religious leaders were right, folks. God is giving the kingdom to the worst of sinners, to tax collectors, to prostitutes and the like, to the people who will give him the fruits of the kingdom. Christ is gathering a people for God, gathering a people to himself to graciously bring them then into subjection or we could say into submission to his dominion, his reign, his rule, his provision, his care, his blessings. Christ is doing this. The gospel is that Christ Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, is the cornerstone of God's house and we are that house. Though though the builders rejected him, the Lord exalted him. And it is marvelous in our eyes, brothers and sisters, because we belong to the king. The gospel is that though God takes away the kingdom from Israel and its leaders, he has given it to us, to his people from all of the nations of all of the earth, so that we can then, by his grace and by his spirit, produce the fruits of the kingdom throughout the earth for the glory of our king. Jesus promised that the kingdom would be given to a people producing its fruits. And how how comforting, if we pause and just think about the gospel, how comforting it is to be united to Christ by faith, to be united to the king, and to be filled with his glorious and powerful spirit who is not only building us into a spiritual house, brothers and sisters, but producing kingdom fruit in us. Listen to what Peter wrote. To the elect exiles dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were Gentile Christians delivered from paganism, brought into the kingdom visible on earth, the church, and were brought under the reign and rule of Jesus. These people knew paganism, and they knew the gospel, and, and, and then Peter gave them gospel. And listen to what he wrote. To the church. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The church throughout the nations of the world, it is not a replacement of Israel, it is the fulfillment of Israel. And a bit later, Peter added, but you are a chosen race. That has massive historical significance. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Ah, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is true of us today. By God's relentless grace, we have come to the living stone, Jesus Christ, and he is building us up into a spiritual house, his temple, indeed the dwelling place of God. By faith in and union with Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a holy nation, the church and the world a people belonging to Christ the King. The Lord exalted Jesus and he exalted him as head of the corner and it is absolutely marvelous in our eyes. Christ is marvelous. This precious stone that holds all things in place. We do not fall upon the stone, brothers and sisters. The stone does not fall on us and crush us, brothers and sisters. We lay upon the stone which supports us as our foundation. So how might this parable help you? I hope you have a lot of help already. But how might this help you? Well, six, the helpfulness of the parable. One scholar said of this parable, the story is one of the most beautiful and touching ever told. Is this parable beautiful? and touching to your soul. Do you hear it and look at its details and contours and do you find comfort in it? Do you see the relentless kindness of God in it? Think about for a moment how God has been relentlessly kind to you. You know, we just, we just don't, We gotta think about this. Think about how Christ has been kind to you. Think of all the preachers from your past that God has sent to you throughout your life who have proclaimed the law and proclaimed the gospel and called you to repentance and called you to faith. Has God not spoken? Has God not appealed? Think think about God giving you his precious gifts of the sacraments and how they continue to call you to Christ, to look at Christ and to find hope in him and to find grace. God actually giving you grace through the sacraments as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how many, uh, for, for many of you here, think of how God put you into a Christian covenant family who took you to church. You had nothing to do with it. You were oblivious. You were a little child. You don't remember. They just took you. And you grew up in the church. Think of how God gave you multiple Bibles that are sitting in your house. A copy of God's holy word and how he gives you access to almost limitless resources of the grace of God from good Solid, sound sources explaining to you what the Bible means. Think of the creeds. Think of the confessions. Think of the catechisms. All at your disposal to learn of God's goodness and grace. Think of the shepherds that God has given you to to take ownership of you. to, To have care and watch over your souls 
to give you the grace of Christ through their shepherding care and to, to have them point you to the comfort in Christ. Think of the communion of saints that God has given you. Think of how he's given you your brothers and sisters in Christ. The communion of saints. And they encourage you, and they pray for you, and they cry with you, and they bear your burdens with you, and they keep you accountable, and they'll get up all up in your grill when stuff is not going right because they love you, and they care for you. Has God not extended relentless kindness to you throughout your life? Is God not relentlessly extending kindness to you now? how unthinkable it would be for us to ignore it all and to bear no fruit. To bear no fruit. Should we not be fruitful? Fruitful, bearing the fruit of the kingdom. Jesus said exactly what we need to hear at this point, and I'll end with his words, his precious words. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me.